Hey, hey. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. It's my privilege. Thanks, Mom. Thanks for clapping. I appreciate that. Hey, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker today. Paul Williams is the president of the Orchard Group, and um, the Orchard Group, we've partnered with them for a long time on starting new churches. They do this all over the United States and now globally, so um, you guys are significant partners through your financial support of Parkview. We also direct some money that direction, and a lot lot of good stuff going on, so we love the partnership there, and uh, we've been doing that for quite a while. Paul's going to be speaking on lessons you're going to learn in a boat, okay? So in order to open it up, we're going to play one of the classic, classic sailing videos of all time. If you need Kleenex to dab the tears, uh, that's in front of you, all right? Let's play it. Do you want to come sailing with me on my friend George's boat? (laughs) No, no. That's okay. You don't have to. No, I'd love to. Uh, (laughs) It sounds great. I've never been on a boat, and I don't think I can handle it. (laughs) It just makes my lips numb to think about it. But if your friend is a good sailor and the craft is seaworthy, yes, I will go sailing. Yeah, let's go sailing. I have no other plans. I'm sailing! I'm sailing! I'm a sailor. I sail. I'd like to talk to my daughter alone. But isn't this a breakthrough? I mean, that I'm a sailor? I sail? I, I sail now? Keep sailing, Bob. Out on a boat on the lake, way far away from the dock, with the wind of the wind, with the sky and everything. I never get tired of that movie. Or Bill Murray, for that matter. So, we're on vacation in Canada. I'm looking forward to going fishing with my three brothers-in-law. John and I were the first ones to get in our boat. We start rowing up the St. Lawrence River. We're not making a lot of progress. The wind is against us. On the other hand, we're definitely making more progress than my other two brothers-in-law, Dave and Tom, in their boat. Dave is rowing just as hard as he possibly can row, but it looks to me like he's not going anywhere at all. Fact of the matter was, David was not going anywhere at all. You see, he was still tied to the dock. Here he is rowing for all he's worth, trying to pull all of Canada behind him. And what made it even better is that he's the president of Cincinnati Christian University. And here he is. It was, he's great. You know, funny things happen in boats, and it's always been intriguing to me that some of the most important lessons ever learned in Scripture were lessons learned when people were riding in boats. And yes, that's right. You guessed it. This morning we're going to talk about some of those boat stories because it's true. Important lessons are learned in boats. Our first boat story comes from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has just finished eight mini parables. He's ready to head back across the Sea of Galilee. He gets in the back of the boat. The disciples get in the front of the boat. They head across the sea, and a terrible storm kicks up just like that, which, as I understand it, is not all that unusual on the Sea of Galilee. Only this storm was worse than usual. The waves are crashing against the boat. The wind is whistling through the boat. The disciples thought, well, this is it. We're going to die right here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they look in the back of the boat, and there is Jesus sound asleep. Don't you just hate it when someone has the capacity to be completely and utterly calm in the midst of what you are personally convinced are dire circumstances? 
I, I live part-time in Colorado, part-time in Long Island, New York, and so I was in Long Island last November, and my buddy and I decided to go out kayaking because it was an extremely warm November day, the week after Thanksgiving, but very warm, about 70 degrees. So since it was so warm, we didn't even wear our wetsuits. We just got in our kayaks, headed out across the Great South Bay. It was windy, but warm. So we went toward this inlet with the wind behind us, and all of a sudden, we got hit by a following wave that turned over both of our kayaks. We both have very stable kayaks, hard to turn over, which means you can't do the Eskimo roll to get them back up again. Once you've turned over, you have to do a wet exit. You've got to pull up on the front of the spray skirt. You've got to push yourself out of the boat like you're taking off a pair of pants, and then you've got to go to the surface. All this while you're upside down underwater. And that water was exceedingly cold. It was late November. So when I finally come up to the surface, I am gasping for air. Sure, we're going to die. I say, we got to get to the shore. we got to get to the shore. I'm swimming for all. And I look around. He's as calm as calm can be. I'm kicking my feet with everything. He said, Paul, Paul, stand up. <laughs> yeah, sure enough, water's about four feet deep. I just kind of pulled the boat behind me back to the shore. That's what's going on here. The disciples are absolutely terrified for their lives. Jesus is sound asleep in the back of the boat. They wake him up, not because they really think he can do anything, but because they're desperate for any kind of help at this point. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And then he speaks to the storm just three words. He says to the storm, quiet, be still. Now, when my kids were young, I could say that all day long. Nothing ever happened. Jesus says it one time, and the storm just stopped. Imagine that you're out here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The storm is raging. You're sure you're going to die. Jesus speaks and the storm is just gone. And all of a sudden it occurs to the disciples, if at first they were terrified of the storm, now they have a second and even more compelling reason to be terrified. Now they're terrified of this man, Jesus. Who is this man that with a few simple words he can calm a raging storm? I know how they felt about Jesus. They were drawn to him and yet frightened of him all at the same time. That's how I felt about my kindergarten teacher. She was an older lady, 95, 96, thereabouts. She was really sweet, but then she had this, she could get in a bad mood. And I was always convinced when she was in one of those bad moods, she would put me in a little tiny school locker and lock me there for the better part of an afternoon. I was drawn to her and yet frightened of her all at the same time. C.S. Lewis had an understanding of these kinds of things. In his Chronicles of Narnia series of books, Aslan the Lion is the hero of the books, and Aslan is obviously a type of Christ. The children are very taken by Aslan because he's their savior. At the same time, hey, he's a lion. And if he wanted to, he could tear them limb from limb. And Lewis was fond of saying throughout all seven books that Aslan was not a tame lion, you know. And so now the disciples were discovering that Jesus was not a tame Lord. And I think for the disciples, this really is the point at which the journey began. I think everything up to this point was just a prelude. It was just the introduction. It was once before a time. This is when once upon a time begins. Up to that point, they thought Jesus is a nice guy who might be worth a few free meals. And now they realize, no, he is in fact the Lord of the universe. And it was terrifying, as it should have been. An important lesson learned in a boat. Then we come to our second 
boat story. Sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people from a few loaves and fishes. This would be a miracle. The people, this spontaneous party erupts among them. We've got a new king now, a new king for Israel, King Jesus. He will defeat the Romans, bring independence back to our nation, and give us free food, a loaf of Roman meal bread on our doorstep every morning. It'll be great. Well, Jesus has no interest in being the new political king of Israel. He leaves, goes up into the mountains alone, and he tells his 12 disciples to go back down and cross the Sea of Galilee. Now you can see them shuffling back to the seaside thinking, oh man, the time was so perfect for him to proclaim himself king. We could have been secretary of state and secretary of defense, but they follow his instruction. They get back to the seaside, they look at the water, they look at the boat, they look at the water, deja vu sets in. Oh, we've done this before, we do not want to do this, but they set sail and sure enough, halfway across this terrible storm kicks up. Only this time it's worse because there's no Jesus sound asleep in the back of the boat. But it got worse yet. They look out and there's a ghost walking toward them on the water. The ghost spoke. He said, take courage, it is I. Interesting word, courage. I always thought to be courageous meant to step forward without any fear whatsoever. But somewhere I finally occurred to me, that's not courage, that would be stupidity. No, courage is stepping forward even though you are absolutely filled with fear. And Peter, rather courageously, thought he'd heard that ghost before. And he said, Lord, if that's you, tell me to walk to you on the water. So Jesus says, okay, Peter, walk to me on the water. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water. You ever done that? I've never done that. I don't know anybody who's walked in the water. Well, I take that back. When I was a kid growing up in northern Ohio, we had this church camp called Round Lake because it had a big round lake. And one night they decided to do a biblical reenactment of this story. It was cool because they had a floating dock in the middle of the lake. And so they filled the ballast in the tanks of that dock just enough to take it right down to water level. And it was really cool. It looked like Jesus was walking on the water. The only problem was Jesus couldn't tell where the edge of the dock was. And then it turned out that he didn't swim all that well. And so the disciples in the boat had to save Jesus, kind of ruin the impact of the whole thing. (laughs) Now, the only one with the courage to get out of the boat and walk in the water was Peter. Oh, I know. He took his eyes off Jesus, fell into the water, cried, Lord, save me. Duh, he's human. This is what we do over and over again. It's okay. That's not the major point. The point isn't that he took his eyes off Jesus and fell into the water. I mean, what? You did that 15 minutes ago? Probably I did. The important point is that he had the guts to get out of the boat and walk on the water in the first place. I was 29 years old. I was working for an organization called Christ in Youth, traveling the country. My wife and I were in Ohio and Kentucky, and we loved life there. And One morning, my wife said to me, I think we're being called to start new churches in New York. I said, I think it's not the call of God, it's indigestion. Because I can't stand even visiting New York. What do you mean being called to New York? And she said, I don't know. The last couple of times we've been there, I think we're supposed to be there all the time. Well, I didn't like that. We were scheduled to go a few weeks later, and pretty much as always, I had no use for the place. I'm I'm leaving thinking, oh God, don't make me ever come back to this place again when I realized, oh, I have to come here. We have been called here. So we moved to New York. We got out of the boat. 
And for 15 years, we busted our butts and saw no results. We'd start new churches. They would average maybe 50 at five years of age. They'd top out at about 75 people, nothing to write home about. But I discovered if you stay at something long enough, God starts to feel sorry for you. Because about 15 years in, all of a sudden, things started changing. Our churches went from averaging 50 at five years of age to averaging 500 at five years of age and then growing rapidly to 1,000 and beyond churches like this. You helped us plant a whole bunch of those churches. You're helping us right now with new churches because we've grown out of New York. You're helping us with a new church in Salt Lake City, a new church in the L.A. area, another church in New York City. I mean, it's really neat what's happening. We've seen an explosion in growth in our churches, but it never would have happened if my wife had not turned to me and said, it's time for us to get out of the boat and walk on the water. You know, God is always calling us forward. He's never asking us to stand still. And today, right now, in your life, you know you're supposed to get out of the boat. There's a step of faith you're supposed to take, a courageous step you are supposed to take forward. Maybe you're in a dead-end job, you know, the kind of job that half of you doesn't even have to get out of bed in the morning. And maybe you need to get out of the boat and say, ah, you know what, I'm going to give up that job and look for one that feeds my soul. Or maybe you've been coming here for a long time and you just can't get yourself to make a commitment to Jesus. Well, it's time. Get out of the boat. Make that commitment to Christ. Or maybe you've got a really tough background. A lot of things happened early in your life and you keep trying to get through life without dealing with them and you realize, you know what, these things are screwing with me. I I need to go find a therapist and really deal with this stuff. Well, then do it. Get out of the boat. I don't know what the call is on your life, but I bet there is one right now. How do you need to get out of the boat and walk on the water? Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water. An important lesson learned in a boat. Then we come to our last boat story. It's the 27th chapter of the book of Acts, the entire chapter. Paul, one of the apostles, is a prisoner. He's headed to Rome to appear before Caesar, something you can do as a prisoner if you are a citizen of the Roman Empire. He's in a place called Fair Haven, getting ready to set sail for the harbor at Phoenix. Paul goes to the captain and the owner of the ship and begs him not to sail. He says, there are terrible storms on the Adriatic Sea this time of year. This is not a time to sail. Wait for a better season. But he's a prisoner. Why should the captain, owner, listen to him? So he puts everybody on board and sets sail. Sure enough, three days out, a terrible storm kicks up. The Bible tells us it was a nor'easter. Hurricane force winds. There's no way they can make any headway in the storm, so they just batten everything down, decide to ride it out, only they can't ride it out. After 11 days, they're fearful for their lives. They start throwing cargo overboard. And after 14 days, the Bible tells us all 276 seasoned sailors aboard lost all hope. And what happened? Paul spoke up. And what did he say? I love it. He said, I told you so. (laughs) You know, God blessed Paul with many gifts. Tact, evidently, not one of them. He said, but not to worry, not to worry. Well, it's true, the ship's going to break into a thousand tiny pieces, but not a single hair of anyone's head is going to be harmed. Oh, how do I know this? Because an angel has spoken to me. Now, can you imagine the nerve it takes to stand up in front of 276 seasoned sailors and say, an angel has spoken to me? 
You can just see them. Yeah, right. And I suppose the Cubs are going to win a World Series sometime this century too, huh? I'm sorry. I can't resist. I'm a Mets fan. Our team's just about as sorry. Yeah, what do you do? But you know what? He said it with such confidence that these seasoned sailors believed him. When after 14 days they hadn't eaten, Paul said, it's time to eat. They sat down to eat. He said, oh, before we eat, we need to pray. And they waited until he prayed. So they were hoping to run the ship aground into an island. didn't work out that way. It ran aground into a sandbar instead. Once that happened, they said, all right, we'll swim for the island. Everybody who can't swim, wait for the ship to break apart, which it will do. And we'll ride the pieces to shore. But one of the sailors said to the captain, hey, what about the prisoners? We're responsible to roam for these prisoners. We cannot allow them to escape. We really should kill them before we abandon ship. And the truth is, Paul had to be terrified. As terrified as you or I have ever been. Terrified, first of all, as a prisoner going to Rome. Terrified of the storm. He's no seasoned sailor. He doesn't know how to deal with the sea. Terrified of dying at the hands of these sailors. But in the midst of that terror... He's able to boldly stand up and say, don't sail. Boldly stand up and say, I told you so. Boldly stand up and say, let's eat and let's pray before we eat. And when, for whatever reason, they decided not to kill him, and he got safely to the island of Malta, what did he do? He risked his life telling people there about Jesus in a culture that was very hostile to any Jews whatsoever. And we realize, if the first stage of life is to find out that Jesus just isn't a nice guy who might be good for a few free meals... And the second stage of life is to realize he's the Lord of the universe. Therefore, I really should trust him and get out of the boat and take some steps of faith trusting him. Well, then Paul just showed us what the third stage of life is. It's having taken so many of those steps out of the boat and having found God so faithful time and time and time again that you finally have the confidence to take big leaps out of the boat. But the question for me is, how do I get where Paul was? How do I get to the point where I am not just sitting terrified in the midst of the storm in the boat? How do I get there? Same way anybody does. By getting out of the boat and taking one little tiny courageous step forward at a time. My son Jonathan loved to play basketball when he was a kid. In about the fifth, fourth grade, he was on a team. And after one of the games, one of the coaches came to me and he said, Your kid's good. Probably the best guard I've seen in years and years. He said, when he gets to junior high, he's going to make the team. He said, it's tough, though. There's always like 100 kids try out, and they take 12. It's a big program in this big school. He said, but he'll make it. So at dinner that night, I told Jonathan what the coach had said. I thought he would take great encouragement from it. Instead, he got real, real quiet. I said, buddy, what's wrong? He said, Dad, what if I don't make the junior high team? I said, well, what if you don't? He said, well, if I don't make the junior high team, I probably won't make the high school team. If I don't make the high school team, how will I ever get a scholarship to a Division I school? And if I don't get a scholarship to a Division I school, how will I ever play for the NBA? And Dad, all I ever wanted to do was play for the NBA. I felt so bad for him because it was one of those breakthrough times in life when you realize maybe for the first time ever that not all of your dreams are going to come true. I wondered how he would process the information. I came home from work a couple of weeks later. He met me at the car door. He said, Dad, you know that week of basketball camp I was going to this summer? I said, yeah. He said, I don't want to go to just one week. 
Because the way I got it figured, I'm not going to be as tall as you. And if I'm going to make it into that junior high team, I'm going to have to get better, you know, kind of like one week of basketball camp at a time. I want to go to like five or six weeks. I was so proud of him. Because he'd come to the realization a lot of people just don't ever come to. That there's only one way to face your fears. It's by facing your fears. So Jonathan did play junior high ball, and he played high school ball, and no, he did not get a scholarship to a Division I school, but I think they'd let him play for the Cleveland Cavaliers. You ever seen them? I think there's a good chance he could play for them. No, when he finished college, he decided to become a teacher in inner-city Philadelphia, one of the toughest cities, toughest districts, toughest schools in the nation, because he had learned to get out of the boat and take steps of faith forward, and he taught there very successfully for seven years. And then he too felt the call to New York, the call to plant a church in New York. And so he and his wife and his two little girls packed up and moved to Manhattan and from Manhattan to Brooklyn where they're starting a church this fall. They just had their first preview service last week. About 90 people showed up, which was amazing for a preview service. He's working harder than he ever has before. Their launch is late in September. You are financially supporting that church, helping them get underway. And and you know what? I'm his dad. You know how that makes me feel about you? You Extremely grateful. You know, he's going to do a great job. It's written all over it because the kid has, well, he's 35 now. He knows how to get out of the boat and walk on the water day after day, time after time. And so you get up in the morning and you say, Today, no matter how tough, no matter how hard, I will get out of the boat and take a step forward. And you get up the next morning and say, today, no matter how tough, no matter how hard, I will take a step out of the boat forward. And that doesn't mean some tragedy doesn't come along that sends you back to the beginning again. But what do you do? You get up the next morning and you say, today, I will take a step of faith forward. Hard? Yeah, it's hard. You bet it's hard. But it is the only decent way to live. A number of years ago now, I was working with my buddy on his boat on Champlain Creek off the coast of Long Island, right by the Great South Bay. A lot of really awful things had come into his life in the year before. My buddy's also our family doctor, and his father had died of an illness that they never were able to diagnose. Even though they had centers for disease control working on it, they never figured out what it was. He passed away. Shortly after that, his mother had a heart attack. She's trying to call him to tell him what's going on, and he's where he can't be reached by phone, and she died. Then his daughter, six, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. A couple of other really tough things happened. It was not a good year. But now it's several months later, and he's starting to kind of come through it all. I see a spark in his step again and light in his eyes. And So as we're working on his boat that day, I said, Stan, how did you get through the last year? He said, there's no way I could have made it were I not a person of faith. He said, I mean, all you can do is just get up every morning and take a step of faith forward. And he said, and you know, I kept repeating those words you and I both know from Dag Hammarskjöld. Oh, I I knew those words. I spoke them often myself. Dag Hammarskjöld was Secretary General of the United Nations in the 1950s. Many people think he was the greatest diplomat internationally in the 20th century. It was a horrible time. In the middle of the Cold War, his life was not pleasant But shortly before he was killed in a tragic plane accident in Zimbabwe, he wrote in his memoirs a single line. He said, Night is drawing nigh for all that has been thanks 
for all that shall be, yes. It's only a man of faith who can speak those words. And as we sat there working on his boat, Stan said, that's how I got through. By being able to pray every day for all that has been thanks. For all that shall be, yes. And I know, he said, that my faith will carry me through. I watch the sun glisten across the waters of the great south bay and the waves gently lap against the starboard bow. And I thought, you know what? It really is true. Important lessons are learned in boats. Will you pray with me? Father, this is a hard ride. So many times it's so difficult. So many times we feel threatened by the storms. And then we remember that you have gone before us. That you too suffered as we suffer. The crazy people killed your own son. You know what it's like to suffer unjustly, to have to live through the storms, and you are with us every step of the way. And Father, as we find the courage to get out of the boat and take a step forward, may we trust in you and the truth that when it's all said and done, love wins. And love casts out all fear. This is our prayer, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.